morning and welcome again, especially if you're visiting. Uh, we are in 1 Samuel chapters 24 through 26. Natalie read chapter 24. I'm going to read part of chapter 25, and then I will explain chapter 26 when I get there. Hopefully you had a chance to read it this week. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting at verse 28. If you have a Bible, keep it open. This is a long passage. We'll be jumping around. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers we call chapters, the little numbers we call verses. 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting at verse 28. The, um, what happened before this is, you heard chapter 24, David spared Saul. And then we hear about this guy named Nabal, this really rich guy. Uh, David goes and asks him for some stuff, and Nabal uh, insults him, makes David really mad. David's ready to kill everybody. And Nabal's wife comes down and talks to him and calms him down. And so now we are jumping right into the middle of that. Um, chapter 25, starting at verse 28. This is Abigail, the wife, talking. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we come to feast upon the riches of your word. Help us to see uh, beautiful, wonderful things in it. Most of all, help us to see uh, great David's greater son, Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, many of you heard about this, uh, maybe some of you didn't. Three years ago in Dallas, a white police officer named Amber Geiger entered an apartment that she thought was her own and quickly there killed her neighbor, an unarmed black man named Botham Jean, whom she had believed to be an intruder in her own apartment. During her trial for murder, she testified that she had come to hate herself, that she had been begging God to forgive her, 
and that she no longer believed that she deserved to see any of her friends or family ever again, and even that she wished that her neighbor was the one who had the gun and that he had killed her instead. Um, And so very powerfully, after she was convicted of murder during a time when family members could explain how this had impacted them to her, uh, Jean's 18-year-old brother told her that he forgave her. He told her that he wanted what was best for her, and he specified that most of all this meant that he wanted her to find God's forgiveness by giving her life to Christ. If you haven't seen the video, I'd encourage you to watch it. It's very powerful. Um, But at the end of his statement, uh, he asks the judge, who at this point is already weeping, uh, he asks the judge if he can have permission to hug his brother's murderer. uh, And the judge lets him do it, and they go, and she sobs on his shoulder. The late uh, atheist and provocateur Christopher Hitchens said that Jesus' teaching that we need to love our enemies is the most evil teaching that Christianity has to offer. Hitchens says that it's so evil not only because it's impossible to do, but because it's wrong to command. Many people praised uh, the brother, Brent Johns, forgiving his brother's murderer, but many people also were sharply critical. They said, hasn't the call for victims to forgive their abusers often been used to sidestep accountability? Wasn't this kind of thing just an exercise and papering over real instances of oppression? But as we heard earlier in our confession of sin, Jesus does call us to forgive not only our friends, but especially our enemies. That does not mean that we neglect real justice or real consequences or real repentance. But those things do come along with real forgiveness. Every week, we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray that God would forgive our debts just as we forgive our debtors. Right after the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' very next statement is this. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus tells multiple parables that revolve around this theme of forgiving your enemies and your debtors in light of how much God has forgiven you. He says we are to love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Our chapters today, 1 Samuel 24 to 26, wrestle with this theme of showing mercy to the enemy. David has three different encounters with two different enemies, and in every case, he learns that he can and he must show mercy towards those who mistreat him. In David's mercy toward his enemies, we are seeing yet again a sketch of Jesus' much greater mercy towards his much greater enemies. And so we today, as his disciples, as Christians, are learning why and how we need to show mercy to our own enemies. And so let's dive in. Look at chapter 24, which I have titled, Sparing the Maniac. David spares the maniac. Last week, we saw in chapters 21 to 23, we saw how David was constantly on the run from King Saul's obsessive, jealous quest to kill him. And so once again, 
It's become familiar now. Once again, Saul figures out where David is and comes hunting for him. He now has 3,000 elite soldiers with him to help him finish the job. In chapter 24, verse 3, you hear that Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And it just so happens that it's the cave where David and his men are hiding out. And so David's men there with him are elated. At the back of the cave, they see Saul come in. He's squatting down there, doesn't realize what's going on. They say, this is a perfect opportunity, David, for you to finish off this terrible enemy once and for all. They tell him, uh, maybe they use the Christianese language of the open door. They say, David, look, isn't this coincidence a sign that God wants you to kill Saul? What else could this mean? It's so obvious. And so David squats forward to squatting Saul there, and he uses the greatest sneakiness, he takes out his sword, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. It would be a bit of an underwhelming action. He doesn't kill him, but he's still showing how vulnerable Saul is. He's showing that Saul has fallen into his power. We've seen in 1 Samuel the symbolic importance of putting clothes on and taking clothes off. All over the story, different people with their clothing uh, representing their roles, representing their authority. And so David cutting off a piece of Saul's royal robe is probably a symbolic gesture that shows that David is taking the kingship from Saul. It would be something like, I guess, if you snuck up to a general and cut off the stars off of his shoulder. It would be actually a very serious and offensive symbolic action. But David, when he does this, is immediately convicted over doing it. He realizes that he should not have done even this pretty minimal thing. In verse 6, you hear something that pops up over and over in these chapters. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him. David rebukes his men who want him to kill Saul. He says there's no way they're going to use the opportunity to do it, even though he's their sworn enemy. Now, when, Saul, or when David says, I'm not going to take the chance to kill Saul, it's not just that he's making a, a crafty tactical or political move. It's not just that he's saying, well, if I do this, there's a bunch of guys out there and we're stuck in a cave and you know, we're not going to be able to win. And it's not just about pacifism. Remember that David is packing Goliath's sword and he's surrounded with armed men. This is primarily a theological move. David knows that God's kingdom is not a trophy to be taken, but a gift to be received. Maybe something important for us as Christians to remember ahead of time before another election rolls around. God's kingdom comes as a gift from God. It's not something for us to battle for. Just like God made Saul king, so also David has received a promise that God will make him the king. And David has been learning all through his exile, all through his running around through the wilderness, that God must be and will be the one to give it to him. David cannot seize the kingdom for himself. It has to be totally clear to everybody that God is the one who gives the kingdom, that David has been innocent through the whole thing. And so now in verse 8, David demonstrates his confidence that he learned about, we heard last week. He, he demonstrates this confidence that God will protect him by stepping out of the cave and shouting down the hill to Saul with his entire army even farther beyond. He says to Saul, look here, look what I've got. I have this piece of your robe. And Saul turns around, looks down at his robe, realizes what's happened. David shows deference to Saul. He calls him my Lord. He bows down to him. He underscores his own innocence in the action 
he underscores that he's refused to take matters into his own hands, even through the use of something like violence that everyone around him told him he should do. And so you see there in verse 12, chapter 24, verse 12, David trusting that God is the one who will sort everything out for him. Not only in giving him the kingdom, which he will do, but also in avenging the horrible way that Saul's been treating him. In verse 12 he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. It's the language of the courtroom. David is saying, God is my prosecutor. God will carry the lawsuit for me. I don't have to do it. I trust him to do it. This posture is the key to our own forgiving of our own enemies. We don't deny or neglect the need for real justice or real consequences, whether they come in this life or in the life to come. But we do trust that God is ultimately the one who must bring them. This was Jesus' posture, Peter tells us in one of his letters. When Jesus suffered, he says, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that posture also needs to be ours. Paul says in Romans 12, Remember, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so David is sorry that he's cut off this piece of Saul's robe. It was this brief moment of starting to take matters into his own hands. But now he's come to see, now he knows that God is his judge, that God will sort Saul out for him, that God will give him the kingdom. And so you have all of a sudden, when Saul realizes what's going on, this really sad, tragic moment in the whole story. Saul breaks down weeping. He's weeping. It's really, really tragic. He's facing the inevitable failure of his own career, of his own kingdom. And so he acknowledges as he's weeping there that David is more righteous than he is. Verse 20, he finally acknowledges the thing he's been running from this entire time. He acknowledges that one day David will be king. But David has learned, rightly I think, David has learned not to trust his words, not to trust his apology, even if it's momentarily sincere. And so they part ways once again. David has spared the maniac. But now in chapter 25, you see David sparing the moron. David sparing the moron. God's prophet Samuel, we're told right there in this little glimpse, we're told that Samuel has just died, that everyone grieves for him. There's no word about Saul grieving for him. But God's prophet has died. And so there's a bit of a question there. What is this going to mean for David if he doesn't have God's prophet there to speak God's word to him? And so you're seeing how God continues to care for David, even without Samuel around. You're even seeing in this story how God continues to remind David of his promises about the future. David apparently still needs to learn that God is going to protect him, that God will work for him, that God will save him. David is going to learn in this next chapter that you don't need, that he doesn't need, that we don't need to be consumed with protecting ourselves, consumed with trying to save ourselves. You hear that there's this man who's fantastically wealthy. Only after you get all this detail about all of his possessions do you finally hear his name. His name is Nabal. It means in Hebrew, fool. 
You hear that his wife Abigail, by contrast, is wise and smart and beautiful, but that he's a buffoon. You hear that he's harsh and arrogant and self-absorbed. And so David and his men have been in the area for some time, apparently providing some kind of security for Nabal's property and workers. And now he sends, it's a feast day, there's a big party going on, and so David sends some of his servants to ask Nabal to give them something to compensate for the security services they've been providing. Uh, It sounds a little bit to me like David is running a protection racket of some sort, but maybe if we're going to believe the best about David, maybe it's just that he's inviting himself to a party. But in any case, whatever David's doing with this protection thing, in any case, the blowhard Nabal smugly tells David to pound sand. Uh, Listen to verse 11. Listen to how often Nabal refers to himself. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? It's all about Nabal. All I can think about is himself and his stuff. And so when David's servants pass on the message, uh, David takes the machismo and instantly turns it up to 11. He says, every man strap on his sword. It's like that scene in Predator where everyone's like racking their guns and getting ready to go out to battle. David's ego is so bruised by this blatant ingratitude. And so he takes hundreds of men to go slaughter everybody in sight. Like a lot of us, David responds to an unfair attack with grossly disproportionate rage. We say, oh, you're going to do that to me? Watch this. I'll do five times as much to you. I'm going to make you hurt. Nabal is going to pay. But his wise and savvy wife, Abigail, catches wind about what's happening. She and Hannah are just about the only characters in Samuel who don't have anything negative said about them. Uh, She knows how foolish and dangerous her husband is, and so she takes a bunch of his wealth to go and bring it to David without telling her husband what she's doing. It's an example, I think, of what our catechism that our church holds to. It's an example of what the catechism is talking about when it says that people who have authority can actually lessen their authority by abusing their authority. Nabal does not deserve to know what his eminently wiser wife is doing. She doesn't tell him, and there's nothing wrong with her not telling him. He doesn't deserve for her to sugarcoat or to hide his abusive idiocy from other people. She comes to David, she speaks in somewhat respectful terms about her husband, but she's also very clear about what a loser he is and about how dangerous he is. In this incredible feat of courage, Abigail, totally alone, goes down to David and his army in the middle of all their bloodlust, and she says, hey, can you guys like slow down a little bit? I have something to talk to you about. She admits that she bears some responsibility for what's going on. Apparently, I think, because her husband is so worthless and so self-absorbed, she has effectively become in control of all the operations. So she says, you know, I should have caught wind of this sooner. I'm sorry I didn't. I should have heard what was going on and known what was going on. But she offers David some of the food and the drink that he'd originally requested. But the most important thing about Abigail is her theology. She helps David to put all this into proper theological perspective. This is the part I jumped in reading for you guys. She says, first of all, David, uh, you don't really need to do this. This is a massive overreaction. This would make you guilty of shedding innocent blood Even if, yeah, sure, Nabal is kind of a jerk and he hurt your feelings. You don't need to do this, David. She says that this would be an exercise in saving with your own hand. 
This is an act of self-salvation, Abigail says, i.e., you are not trusting God to save you. So much of our own anger, so much of our own attacking and belittling and shaming of other people is really our own fatal attempts to bring our own salvation, to bring our own restoration into situations uh, that make us mad, things that maybe really legitimately should make us mad. We are, though, responding by trying to bring salvation by our own hands rather than trusting God to bring them about in his own way. But even beyond all this, telling David, you don't need to do this. This is an act of self-salvation. Abigail goes beyond that. She goes further. She makes these amazing, almost prophetic promises to David about what's coming for him, which is interesting given that Samuel has just died. She says to him, don't you remember what God has promised you? I've heard about what God's promised you. Are you forgetting them? She says, shouldn't knowing these promises about where God's going to do for you as a king, shouldn't that mean that you don't need to give the beat down to anybody who rubs you the wrong way? She says, David, the Lord will certainly make you a sure house because you are fighting the battles of the Lord. She reminds David that God will protect him from his enemies. I love this imagery. She says, you will be wrapped up in the bundle of the living, like a little pouch. It's like, she's like, you're so safe in God's plan. You're like wrapped up in this little pouch where you're going to stay alive. And then she says, this is a great image. She says, the lives of your enemies, he will sling out like a slingshot. God will just fire them off into the atmosphere. He'll take care of you. And so she says, David, if you cool it, if you hold off and you trust God to fight your battles for you, she says, you're not going to stain your conscience. You're not going to stain your character for having angrily crushed and destroyed your opponents in a way that was totally uncalled for. So she says, just trust the Lord. Don't try to bring salvation by your own understanding, by your own strength. And so verse 32, David says, whoa, you're right. What was I thinking? He praises God for sending her to him. He praises her for her great wisdom and skill. He says, you kept me from blood guilt. You kept me from working salvation with my own hand. And so you have this beautiful picture of feminine strength and wisdom. Abigail diffuses the situation. She reminds David of what God is doing and promising. And David is humble enough to listen to her. You then hear that Abigail goes back home and that Nabal is having a huge party. He styles himself as some kind of king in his own kingdom. And because he's totally drunk, she waits until morning to tell him about how she gave away a bunch of the precious wealth that he cares so much about. Verse 37 says that she does this after or perhaps while he's clearing his bladder of all this wine, which is underscoring for us how ridiculous he is. Uh, this is actually the third time in these chapters that you have a bathroom function being talked about. If you want to hear about the second one, our translations paper over it and make it really polite. Ask me later. I'll tell you about it. Verse 37 says that she does this. She tells him he hears about it, and then he has a stroke or a heart attack or something. He keels over. Ten days later, it says the Lord strikes him, and he dies. David hears and praises God. He says, wow, God avenged the insult that I received from Nabal. He says, the Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. He says, I'm so glad that I listened to Abigail uh, exhorting me and warning me about what was coming. He says, I'm, I'm glad that I just learned from her to trust God to sort it all out. And so he's delighted with her, with her character, with her wisdom. He takes her as his wife, to which she happily agrees. And so David, you see there, learns again, just like he learned with this first encounter with Saul. He learned that God will sort it out. God will take care of him. He can spare the enemies 
He spared the maniac, and he spared this moron. But now again, chapter 26, he spares Saul again. Once again, Saul figures out where David is, and he pursues him with these 3,000 soldiers. His sorrow, his repentance, apparently it was not very long-lived. But now instead of Saul coming to David, you know, he shows up at David's footstep or at feet in the cave. Now you have David going to him. In chapter 26, you have this very similar encounter to what happened in chapter 24, but David is actually far more aggressive. David sees the camp over there and he says, let's go to them. Let's go get really close and see what happens. He asks which one of his men want to go with him and his nephew Abishai, who becomes a much more important character in 2 Samuel Abishai goes with him in the middle of the night. They find that everybody, even all the sentries on guard, are sleeping. And so they creep all the way in, right into the middle of the camp, and they find Saul there, sleeping on the ground like a baby, with his, Saul stu- his spear stuck in the ground right by his head. And we've gotten to know his spear. He's been using this spear to try to kill David, to try to kill Jonathan. He's always holding it and using it to boss people around. And so there's Saul in this position of total vulnerability with the spear right there. Abishai remembers from the first experience that David's a bit touchy for some weird reason about harming Saul. And so he says, well, why don't I do it for you? This is obviously God's will. How can this not be? We didn't get caught. Here's Saul. There's even a weapon right here. He has this great line. He says, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke. I won't strike him twice. I'll just do it one and done. But David has really learned his lesson, especially after this encounter with Nabal. He says, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David says, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. And so you hear that confidence again. David trusting that the Lord will right every wrong. That David will one day ascend to the throne in God's timing and in God's way. He sees again, he expresses again, that the kingdom of God is a gift not a contest. But David says, let's take the spear, which represents Saul's propensity towards violence and power, and let's take his water. Let's take his big jug of water, which is representing, I think, Saul's life, Saul's sustenance there in the wilderness. And so there's still this element of David messing with Saul, kind of playing mind games with him, underscoring that Saul is not as in control as he likes to think he is, and that David has a lot more power over him than he wants to admit. And so we're told then that they take the Saul and they take the spear and the water and they're able to sneak back out. But now we're told that the reason they've been able to do all this is because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on everybody. God is protecting and providing for his king. And so now you have Saul and David's final interaction. This is the last time they're ever going to talk to each other. Again, David calls out, he wakes everyone up. He says, hey everybody, wake up, here I am over here. Uh, He shows Saul what he could have done, but he chose not to do. And then he calls out Saul's right-hand man, Abner. He says, wow, hey, good job, dude. Good job protecting your master. Uh, You know, that's pretty serious what you just did. He's underscoring that he's a better servant than Saul's own bodyguard. And so Saul now calls out like he did before. He says, is that your voice, my son David? David once again underscores his integrity, his innocence, And in the greatest display of honesty and clarity in his life, Saul says, I have sinned. I have acted foolishly. I have made a great mistake. Again, it's actually really tragic. 
Saul knows at one level how badly he has strayed. He knows how self-destructive all this has been. But at the same time, we've seen that Saul just can't escape his own madness, his own obsession, his own addiction to power. He invites David to come back into the fold. He says, David, let's just start over, return, come back into my service. He promises, I'm not going to hurt you anymore. But David wisely refuses to trust him, no matter how heartfelt or sincere his apology might be. Sometimes saying, I'm really sorry, doesn't mean that people need to just act like nothing's happened. Trust takes a long time to rebuild. David knows that. And so David once again underscores his innocence. He underscores this above and beyond regard for Saul's life, even though Saul certainly doesn't deserve it. David says, my own life has been marked by righteousness and faithfulness. He says, I trust that just like I treated your life with concern, even more than that, I know that the Lord will treat my life with concern. The Lord will regard my life as precious. And therefore, David says, that means that God will rescue me out of all my suffering. David has learned through all these encounters. David has learned to trust that God fights the battle for him. He doesn't need to slay his enemies. He can and he should show mercy to them. And it's the same with us. For it's not just that Jesus forgave his enemies out there somewhere. Think of Jesus dying on the cross, praying that God would forgive those who were crucifying him because they didn't know what they were doing. It's not just that Jesus forgives enemies out there. It's even more than that. It's that we are Jesus' enemies. It's that Jesus forgives us. We're a lot more like Saul than we are like David. In our own apathy, our own ingratitude, our own bitterness and arrogance, our self-love, the way that we trample on and use other people for our own advancement, for our own benefit. We're a lot like Saul. But God, in His great mercy, sent Jesus to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to Him. Listen again to Romans 5. Listen to all the different ways that Paul puts this. Romans 5, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, here's how God shows His love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You hear that? Ungodly, still sinners, enemies. That's when God came to you. That's when God loved you. That's when God spared you. This is one of the great recoveries of the Protestant Reformation that we're celebrating today. Uh, That God does not justify and rescue and save people who already have it together or people who mean well or people who are going to pay God back. But rather that God justifies and rescues and saves the wicked. You and me. This is what was so shockingly offensive about Paul's message. It's what was so shockingly offensive about what Luther and Calvin and all these guys taught that God would save the wicked apart from anything they were going to do? Scandalous. How could that be? This is what we mean when we say that justification is by grace alone. Just like David spared Saul and Nabal in and through Christ, God has spared us. 
His is the kingdom, and He's given it to His enemies. His is the power, and He has turned that power towards saving us. His is the glory, and He has shown His glory most beautifully by rescuing the ungodly. God has forgiven our debts. How can we not also forgive our debtors? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your great mercy. Forgive us for how tritely and shallowly we treat your mercy. We think it's just you being nice to us. We think it's just you liking us. But Father, your mercy is so much richer than that. Your mercy is your love for an unlovely people. It's your rescuing of a people who on their own don't want to be rescued, who are happy to live in rebellion against you. And so help us, Father, to see just as you've forgiven us in our hostility to you, help us to find joy in that. And as we find joy in that, help us to forgive our own enemies, even when they mistreat us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.